like uncommonly honest, hard-hitting, truth-seeking radio, please subscribe to Truth Jihad Radio by way of the Substack button at truthjihad.com. Kevin Barrett, who is the editor of Veterans Today, is coming to us live from Wisconsin in the U.S. And we're talking about some of the issues taking place um, with regards to America and other parts of the world and how it affects the rest of us, um, you know, in, in, in the rest of the global village, if you want to call it that. Uh, Dr. Barrett, assalamu alaikum and welcome to Radio Islam International. Wa alaykum as-salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Good to be with you again. Well, good to have you. It's been a while since I've spoken to you, but I hope you're well. And shukran for making the time to be with us. So um, we've been seeing, uh, you know, there's been uh, um, a top general was so scared of Trump, uh, you know, sparking war that um, he made secret calls to his Chinese counterpart. Um, what's that all about? Do you want to maybe give us the background on this very interesting stro- story? Well, yes, this was reported in a new book by Bob Woodward, and uh, apparently it was General Milley, Mark Milley, who was uh, concerned that Trump and his friends might try to hang on to power by uh, basically setting up a coup d'etat and possibly uh, setting up a wag the dog scenario and creating a, uh-huh. a war. And that state of emergency would then allow him to postpone the elections. And then after the election happened, uh, it might allow him to suspend or overturn the results or to set, set up new elections. So that was the concern. Uh, you know, we've all you know, seen that wag the dog movie about this kind of scenario where yes. presidents start wars for political gain. And so the story, according to Woodward, is, is that Milley was genuinely concerned about this and that he had heard that Chinese intelligence was telling China's leadership that there was a serious likelihood of a U.S. attack. So Milley called China to tell them that the U.S. military and intelligence people, the permanent government here, had everything under control. And apparently he uh, had difficulties reassuring them of that, but ultimately there was no World War III, so I guess it worked. So that, that's the story that Woodward is telling, and it could certainly be true. Uh, Then again, it's only one side of the story, and who knows whether uh, that was ever uh, a real consideration. I don't think there's any evidence that Trump was out to start World War III with China. He was more interested Mm -hmm. in starting World War III with Iran, and he nearly did when he ordered the murder of General Soleimani. On the other hand, there is some evidence that Trump's people may have ordered the COVID-19 bio-attack uh, which is most likely the way that COVID-19 appeared in this world is through a U.S. biological warfare attack on Wuhan. So given all of this, um, I'm not really surprised by stories like this. Wow. All right. Um, yeah, it does give us something to think about. Uh, you know, um, I don't think anybody has thought of Trump being the person in, uh, involved with COVID-19. But uh, now that you put it out there, I think it's going to get people thinking but um, another story I think that's uh, making the rounds as well is the one of the prosecution witnesses in the Netanyahu trial. Him and his wife um, died in a plane crash yesterday. Is this, uh, you know, um, adding to the conspiracy theory? Um, do you have your conspiracy hat on this afternoon? 
Well, one could say when something like this happens, when you know, a witness who could put yeah. a gangster like Netanyahu in jail suddenly goes down in a plane crash not long before he's going to testify and put Netanyahu in jail, that you have to be a coincidence theorist. In fact, you have to be a crazy coincidence theorist to think it's a coincidence. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, to me, it's kind of a no-brainer when things like this happen, and they happen all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, plane cra induced yes. plane crashes are one of the most common ways that extremely powerful people assassinate those who are a problem to them. Uh, we've seen this over and over and over. John Perkins, in his book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, describes how two of his personal friends, who were heads of Latin American countries, presidents, uh, were murdered by people that Perkins actually knows. Uh, because you know, Perkins had been working with them with the World Bank to force those countries to take usurious loans. And these presidents had refused, and, they were, and Perkins became skeptical about his role at the World Bank and was working with those presidents to try to do something uh, more just. And then uh, Perkins' friends, these presidents of these two Latin American countries, were murdered in plane crashes by people that are called the asteroids, that is, these high-level uh, assassins who work for big mm -hmm. intelligence agencies and for agencies like the World Bank. And sometimes they probably work for very wealthy or connected individuals as well. And we've seen all kinds of people go down in plane crashes in suspicious circumstances. Senator Paul Wellstone was taken out in a plane crash along with his wife, daughter, and campaign staff after he turned against Dick Cheney and wanted to expose 9-11 and stop the 9-11 uh, wars. Um, yes. we, we've seen, I, I could go on all day talking about plane crash assassinations. So anyway, uh, I don't think you need to put on a tinfoil conspiracy hat to recognize that this is almost certainly one of those assassinations. Wow. You know, it it really does get the mind boggled when you think about um, what is happening in our world right now, because these are things that we, um, growing up, we read in novels and didn't think that, um, you know, that they would actually become reality um, in the 21st century. Well, uh, I, I think um, gangster-like assassinations um, organized by powerful people have been part of reality for a very long time. I mean, you can call me a conspiracy theorist, but I still think that Caesar's murder was indeed the result of a conspiracy. Uh, and and go, <laughs> going back to something you said earlier, by the way, I'm not blaming Trump personally for mm -hmm. the yeah. uh, bio attack on China. It was very likely a rogue operation that would have been conducted by neoconservatives working for people like Mike Pompeo and John Bolton. Yes. Uh, Trump himself would not necessarily have known about it. Mm. All right. So we're also seeing Democrats spooning over George W. Bush. Um, are we in some sort of uh, parallel universe? What exactly is going on with that? <laughs> right. It, it, it's uh, beyond a bizarro world. It's beyond a parallel universe. Now, George W. Bush, the, the arch war criminal whose administration was complicit in the demolition of the World Trade Center towers, murdering 3,000 mm -hmm. Americans to create a public relations pretext for going to war, uh, Bush is now the hero of the Democrats because he's turned against the Trump wing of the Republican Party. And I suppose it's good that the Republican Party is going down in a sort of civil war. And it's it's also good that there are still some anti-establishment people out there, even if they're mm -hmm. uh, severely misguided and following the likes of Donald Trump. But uh, seeing these Democrats swoon over Bush just goes to show that the Democratic Party is now the party of the billionaire establishment elite and they've joined forces with the Bush family, the Bush crime family, which is involved in a long list of serious uh, political crimes in the United States, not least of all the Kennedy assassination, where 
uh, Bush's father, H.W. Bush, was actually in Dallas that day and told us later he didn't remember where he had been on November 22, 1963. He, he phoned in a tip uh, trying to confuse the FBI uh, uh, about uh, a rep- young Republican wow. who, who had been supposedly threatening Kennedy. So George H.W. Bush was clearly a, a serious player in the Kennedy assassination, among many other things. Uh, and so that Bush crime family is utterly and completely evil. And the Democrats are not much better because they're in bed with the same corrupt forces. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're looking at Afghanistan and we've seen um, America, um, you know, sort of being defeated by Afghanistan. Divine justice, you think? Yes, I think so. I think that there is a, a kind of payback. And, you know, we know that, that God's justice is perfect and ultimately whether in this world or the next, uh, we get what we deserve. And some of it happens in this world, some of it in the next, and you're actually better off suffering in this world <laughs> rather than the next. So maybe, in a sense, this is actually not such a terrible thing for the United States to be uh, suffering humiliation in this world. Um, in, I'm sure that Americans who are complicit in these war crimes will suffer in the next as well. But yeah, it, obviously, when you go to war on a false pretext, you make up a lie, uh, like the, the story, the false story about 9-11 that blamed bin Laden and al-Qaeda and blamed, indirectly blamed Afghanistan. Uh, that was all a, a, a lie that was designed to justify a war of aggression by a, a bully, an international bully that wanted to go out and try to grab resources, improve its geopolitical situation. And of course, uh, that bully had been hijacked by another uh, smaller bully, uh, the Zionists in occupied Palestine who were probably one of the main forces behind 9-11. But, of course, it was mm-hmm. the U.S. that primarily that went into Afghanistan for uh, a number of reasons, to try to take the center of the grand chessboard against Russia, China, and Iran, to uh, put the opium business uh, back in, in business after the Taliban had shut down the world's uh, her- heroin trade, which was a threat yes. to the big money launderers and international bankers who used that drug money to balance their books. And then finally, they were interested in in trying to get a pipeline through Afghanistan because the Taliban had been giving the pipeline to a different company, an Argentinian company named Bridus, instead of Unical. So those were the real reasons that the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. But they blew up the Twin Towers in this uh, huge false flag, partly to trigger that war and other wars, but primarily, of course, to set the U.S. on a course of permanent conflict with the enemies of Israel, which is why the Zionists were the biggest force in 9-11. In any case... Uh, invading Afghanistan is not a good idea for any empire. It's called the graveyard of empires for good reason, and it looks like Afghanistan is becoming the graveyard of the American empire as well. Mm-hmm. So post 9-11, how are things going in the U.S.? Were there any uh, further Islamophobic incidents uh, you know, on September 11th this year, seeing that it was the 20th anniversary of um, what they call 9-11? Well, the September 11th uh, remembrances every year are, in a sense, themselves one big Islamophobic incident. Uh, the whole purpose mm-hmm. of 9-11 was to create an intergener- intergenerational public myth, uh, the kind that Philip Zelikow, the scriptwriter of both 9-11, most likely, and the 9-11 Commission report, uh, is interested in. That's his specialty, is writing public myths to brainwash the public, and he's interested in the intergenerational myths that keep having their effect uh, generation after generation, like Pearl Harbor, which 
kept Americans uh, having an yes. anti-Japanese feeling for generations. So 9-11 was supposed to incite intergenerational Islamophobia primarily for the benefit of Israel. That, that's really what it was all about. And so, yes, it's, it's, it's one Islamophobic incident, whether there were smaller cases where in this or that locality somebody said something or there was a hate crime. I'm not sure. I didn't really follow that closely this year. Um, but I, mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting, though, is that that intergenerational anti-Islam myth that was created on 9-11 is starting to wane because that created a, a new fake enemy for Americans. But now we have more enemies uh, and more sort of p- uh, mythical uh, narratives driving Americans to hate in many other directions uh, that pro-Trump people hate Trump and or the pro-Trump people, I'm sorry, blame, you know, hate Biden and, and blame him for everything and hate Democrats. Yes. Uh, the, the anti-Trump uh, people uh, scapegoat Trump for everything. Uh, so there's all this uh, red versus blue uh, enmity in the United States. And then there's mm-hmm. also a, an attempt to blame China for COVID, which is precisely, you know, part of yes. what the anti, the, the attack on China, this bio attack on Wuhan, when probably in, in October of 2019, U.S. military games participants included a couple of biowar uh, special ops types who seeded the first cases of COVID in Wuhan with precisely the idea that China would be blamed for it. And also they did hope to damage China's economy, but unfortunately for them, the blowback uh, actually damaged the West more than it damaged China. Uh, but so people are blaming and hating all sorts of folks now. <laughs> so Muslims are actually moving down the list a little bit. And, and I suppose in a sense, there's an element of divine justice and good news there. But we really need to expose the full truth about 9-11 in order to put an end to this evil false public myth uh, blaming Muslims for terrorism. Mm-hmm. We need to drive a stake through the heart of the official story of 9-11 and put an end to that intergenerational Islamophobia. Absolutely. And I think that's going to take some doing because 20 years for people to have been, um, you know, still believing what they um, saw, even though there's so much of evidence that proves um, that it, it isn't exactly what it was. And yet people still believe. And I think one of the things that really, get, uh, you know, that gets me as a as person sitting here in South Africa, watching what happens in the States is the fact that I see a lot of um, veterans come back home from war in different parts of the Middle East in particular. And most of them um, are not very, um, you know, they, they're not living very normal, happy lives any longer. Uh, many of them are on the streets because they don't have, um, you know, the backing of the, the government. Um, many of them are suffering from different um, issues. I mean, they've been, uh, uh, you know, uh, either have PTSDs or they are have been uh, exposed to chemicals that that have that have left them ill. And yet, um, you know, um, the American population that that tend to believe these uh, so-called myths that we talk about um they don't see this or are they are they are they just uh, blinded to it well we have a, a sort of a national myth in the united states lionizing veterans and especially you know those who fought in in, in wars and, and suffered so we all sort of give lip service to them but in reality american veterans are treated very badly they mm-hmm. uh, off, they have uh, poor medical care. The VA system ha- is corrupt and not very efficient. Uh, and as you say, so many veterans are, are, have their souls damaged by the things that happen in these wars. And one can understand why, because they, they arrive in places like Iraq and Afghanistan believing the public myth. 
and believing they're they're there to do good and to fight for justice and so on, or some of them are yes. there for revenge uh, and ready to kill for revenge. But ultimately, it doesn't take very long before almost all of them wake up and realize that the public version, the pretext for the war was false and that what's really going on in these wars is very, very different from what they had expected and what they had been told. And so they become cynical and jaded. And as they uh, commit atrocious acts or witness atrocious acts, which are inevitable in this kind of warfare, because these are basically wars against entire populations. The U.S. invaded Iraq yes. and basically went to war against every person in Iraq. And likewise with Afghanistan, when you invade somebody else's country, you're going to war against the entire population that you're invading and occupying. And so it ends up being a counterinsurgency war, which involves warfare against the embedded resistance that you know hides within the population, is embedded within the population. Mm -hmm. And so you go to war against the populations. And so they, they end up committing these horrible war crimes, kicking in doors, terrorizing people, raping, uh, murdering innocent people. And those who don't actually participate in such things uh, almost all witness them. At the very least, uh, even a cook or something like that will hear about them. And so they, their souls are damaged by this. They know that deep down inside they're doing something horrible and unjust. And, and many of them can't really live with that. You know, this is why in, in most wars, psychopaths, people who are clinical psychopaths who would, who would test yes. at that level on the psychopathy test, end up doing almost all of the killing or the vast majority of it. And they, they, they're perfectly happy. They come home and they, they just, they, their problem is, is not having people to kill and torture and rape anymore or having it mm -hmm. much harder to get away with that because that's what they, they, that's why they love war. But that's only maybe one, two percent of the male population. The other 98%, 99% is, is basically normal. And those people seeing the, the horrors of war, you know, both committed by actual clinical psychopaths and then also by those other soldiers who've been temporarily brought into uh, sociopathy by the circumstances, they, they are just horrified and their souls are so badly damaged that when they come home, they can't live with themselves. And so we have veteran suicides. I forget if it's like every week or every month or something, we have more veteran suicides yes. than were lost in, in either of these wars. Uh, and then we have people becoming drug addicted, homeless. They self-medicate with drugs, they alcohol, things like that. And unfortunately, the population, which is living in la-la land, believing these myths, doesn't even really notice what's happening to the veterans. And so it's, it's a, the whole thing is, is tragic, and it really comes from having a society that isn't based in in godly morality. It's not based in any divine mm. teaching anymore. It's wandered away from that. And so it's a bunch of you know, people out for themselves. And uh, we end up with a society controlled by psychopaths who are brainwashing the rest of the people. But at, so, at some point, people start to wake up and see the reality. Uh, and we get all of these conspiracy theories about blood drinking reptiles and baby sacrificers and things uh, running the world, which are actually not as inaccurate as they might sound. I mean, the people in charge really are evil. And so people yeah. are waking up to that and it's leading to social instability. So again, I think we are at the, in the twilight of the American empire. And when it's, the history is written, I think the defeat in Afghanistan may once again be seen as sort of the nail in the coffin of this empire. So Afghanistan chalks up another, uh, another graveyard to its list of, of uh, countries taken yes. down in the graveyard of empires. All right. Shukran so much for your time. Interesting talking to you on the, sub on the subject and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And that was Dr. Kevin Barrett talking to us all the way from... Okay, thank you. Those are the messages I received today. 
with messages from people asking me what we're going to happen in Afghanistan in the last couple of weeks and what does it all mean? What's going on? What's the end game? What's the real agenda? What's the US government trying to do? What's the UK government trying to do? No better man to talk about that than an old friend of mine, a brilliant academic and journalist. You can find him at kevinbarrett.substack.com or truthjihad.com. It's great to welcome back my old friend from Madison, Wisconsin. This is the one and only Dr. Kevin Barrett. Kevin, welcome back. How hey, are thank you, you Richie. Hey. It's great to hear you. How are you doing? It's great to hear you. Thanks for coming on. No better man to talk about this than you. Why has the United States left the nation of Afghanistan? What's really going on? Are we to believe that the US has ended its, um, not so much ended its interest in the country, but that it has determined that it will no longer have a base or have bases or have soldiers there um, forevermore? What's happening, Kevin? Well, I, I think the U.S. has been defeated. The uh, people of Afghanistan, and specifically the Taliban, have defeated the U.S. just like the Viet Cong did. And just like in that situation, Richie, I, I don't think that we should conclude that from now on until all eternity, the U.S. will be completely uh, hated by the, everybody in Afghanistan, and it will fall like a ripe plum into the laps of the Chinese it's not quite that simple. Just like with Vietnam, it didn't take very long, actually, before Vietnam started leaning back towards the U.S. a little bit as a counterweight to the power of its huge, powerful neighbor, China. And likewise, the U.S. has not been permanently dealt out of the Afghan equation completely, but it has had its illusions of being a sole hegemonic, unipolar world-dominating superpower rudely shattered and a, a pretty ragtag bunch of very patriotic people who didn't like their country being occupied from around the world rose up and, and defeated the biggest military in the world with most advanced technology. And that's actually, I think, something to celebrate. Not for many Afghans, though, Kevin, it won't be. Now, you and I know the history of the Taliban, and we also know a lot. I'm sure you know more than I do. You've researched it and studied it more than I have. But we know that the Taliban was at one time funded by the CIA. We know that it was funded by other interested parties in the region as well. And the people who suffered always were, I would say, the ordinary men and women of Afghanistan, many of whom don't want to live under the sort of rules and laws that, well, are inevitable once the Taliban forms this new government, Kevin. The Afghan people are going to suffer, right? These are not good guys. They might be in the right when it comes to, you know, defending their country against foreign invaders. I have less sympathy for my government, the Irish government, the British government, and, and the US government, but these are not good guys, right? Well, I, I don't know if it's as simple as, as labeling uh, groups like that good guys or bad guys in the sense that, you know, in the war, they were the good guys in the struggle, you know, U.S. versus Afghanistan, the Taliban, they were the good guys in that struggle. But that doesn't mean that everything else that they've done is good. And eh, to some extent, I share your trepidations for the future, but not perhaps as, as strongly as you do. I think there's a chance that the Taliban have learned from some of their mistakes from the 1990s, and they may not become as obstreperous and hidebound and, and wedded to their particular Pashtun tribal version 
of Islam with a little bit of Saudi Wahhabi uh, shading to it. And they may actually be able to get along with some of the non-Pashtuns, the non-Taliban, uh, the people who don't share that interpretation of Islam, and specifically some of the Shia people in Afghanistan. There are quite a few. And, of course, the Taliban has a history of brutally mistreating some of them. Um, and then there is, of course, also the, these, there's the issue of things like the kite flying and these other kinds of, you know, women's rights and things like that. And so I think we still need to wait and see how that all uh, plays out. If we listen to what the Taliban are saying, they're clearly saying that they are going to open up their government uh, and allow some women. They're saying clearly that they will no longer be uh, pushing their brand of religious extremism on everybody, and they're going to have an inclusive government. And as uh, Pepe Escobar points it points out, inclusive is code for women and Shia. Um, so they may have changed somewhat. And I think that, you know, what the Americans right now are really upset about, but the ones who make policy, of course, not the people, is that the question is whether the Taliban are actually going to extend that amnesty that they announced to include the worst war criminals who murdered uh, many tens of thousands of Taliban sympathizers and supporters, including women and children and their families. The U.S. created death squads in Afghanistan, Richie, and systematically eradicated the women and children of uh, Taliban-friendly villages, just like in Operation Phoenix in Vietnam. So they've been systematically murdering thousands and thousands of innocent civilians uh, in this death squad program. And if the Taliban do end up pardoning those people, as their statements seem to indicate that they, they are saying they will, that would be pushing mercy far beyond any mercy that's ever been shown in the history of warfare by the United States. It's a big if, isn't it? Because while obviously we take with a massive dose, let alone a pinch of salt, what we hear from CNN and NBC News, of course we take with a pinch of salt, but there there, there have been reports coming out of there that people who have been accused of even just working for U.S. contractors in the time that the U.S. has been there, that those people are being threatened with their lives and notes are being placed on their doors by Taliban sympathizers. I don't want to get into too much of a back and forth about this because, you know, it's apples and pears, really. You know, I understand what what, what you're saying. And, yeah, you know, I, I saw the press conference this morning. I've seen interviews with Taliban leaders and they're talking a good game about the things that they don't plan to do. I suppose we'll just have to wait and see how it pans out. What is very interesting there is, of course, is the presence of an Islamic State faction, which the Pentagon, I believe, has claimed numbers some 2,000 at least complete lunatics. And of course, they would, they would supplant, they would replace the Taliban, wouldn't they? What, 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 what does that mean, Kevin? In the short term, what's likely to happen? Could, could the country descend into complete madness, into total chaos, where you have Islamic State militants running riot in Afghanistan and a Taliban trying to kind of hold them off while the US and her allies kind of have a seat in Pakistan and just have a look at it and, you know, and open the peanuts and open the beers and watch it all unfold. What might happen there? Well, you're right. They're going to open the beers and peanuts and watch it unfold because they're the ones who created ISIS in the first place. And now their only strategy left is to try to destabilize Afghanistan so that it doesn't become a peaceful, stable and prosperous stop on the Belt and Road. And so that its minerals are not exploited 
by a consortium of other countries or highest bidders. I mean, when you get down to it, Richie, what this war was really all about from the get-go was that the Taliban in the 1990s, and sure, they had plenty of faults. We don't approve of their cultural policies on kites and women and Buddhist statues, but that had nothing to do with this war whatsoever. And even less did Al-Qaeda or 9-11 have anything to do with it either. That was set up as a pretext. Uh, the invasion of Afghanistan was set in stone in July of 2001. The purpose was to get rid of the Taliban because they weren't uh, willing to do what they were being told to do from Washington. They were told to accept a pipeline deal with Unical, which is the CI-linked, big Western bankster-linked energy company, and they instead uh, got a better deal from Bridas in Argentina. Likewise, they were told, in no uncertain terms, to keep pumping the heroin so that the biggest Western banks and corporations can keep laundering all that drug money and keep their operations afloat in the West. Taliban said no. They shut down the heroin completely. They, there was no heroin for a year and a half because of the Taliban shut it all down. And uh, likewise, they were told that, you know, you're going to have to give us the best deal on all of your resources or we will bomb you back to the Stone Age. And the Taliban said, the heck with you. Bye. And that's what the war has really always been about. Well, the U.S. lost. The U.S. cannot force Afghanistan to give up its resources at a way below market uh, rate simply because the U.S. can say, we'll bomb you into the Stone Age if you don't. We're in a new world now, Richie. The U.S. can't do that anymore in Afghanistan and maybe not anywhere else. That means so the people in Afghanistan can get the best price they can possibly get for their, their gas. They can choose not to flood the world with heroin if they want to. This is all to be celebrated. This is, I, I don't know if it's to be celebrated. I, I, I don't necessarily share this. But let, let, let me, let me go back to the poppy because I think this is very important. You're listening to Kevin Barrett, folks, truthjihad.com, kevinbarrett.substack.com. Great broadcaster. You'll find him on YouTube as well. An academic, um, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, the university there. You know all about Kevin. And this is an area that he's obviously made a career out of researching and studying and talking about. I think regarding the poppy, I think you're bang on. And I wonder, you look at this, you've got your president there. I know you won't consider him to be your president, uh, Joe Biden. And he's taking hits from everybody for his, if it's not because he's been looking at his watch when coffins have been coming off planes, it's because he's been falling asleep in in press conferences or, or whatever. But I wonder how much of this is staged and that the perceived withdrawal is really a bit of genius strategy, evil. We talked about it a moment ago. If these are big problems for the U.S. and for the CIA, and I, I believe they are, you know, the lack of access to, 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 the, to the heroin, to the opium, the poppies, all of that, oil, of course, and I think these are small potatoes ultimately, but let's stay with that for a moment. Well, it's a great strategy then, isn't it, Kevin? Get out. And let the ISIS guys that you correctly said earlier that the US and France and Britain and Israel have funded to the tune of billions of pounds in weaponry and everything else. Let's get out, put the deck chairs up, let them wreck whatever's left of Afghanistan, and then we'll go back in at the very end and sweep up whatever's left. Makes sense to me. I don't know if they're going back in, Richie, but I do agree that they are using ISIS and other ways of uh, threatening Afghanistan with chaos to try to improve their bargaining position and to try to get those resources again. Instead of yeah. saying, we'll bomb you back to the Stone Age if you don't give us your resources cheap, now they're saying, 
we will unleash ISIS and other uh, forces of chaos on you if you don't give us your resources cheap. We will make your life miserable one way or another. But still, I think it's an improvement that they've actually been beaten when they tried to bomb Afghanistan back to the Stone Age and mass murder millions of people uh, and, and try to impose their will on Afghanistan and grab all those resources cheap. It failed. And so now they're falling back to Plan B as they always do, which is to just create chaos. And yeah, it's, it's unfortunate people suffer horribly. Look what they did to Syria. They did the same yeah. thing to Syria. You know, give us everything we want or we will wreck your country. And they did. They wrecked Syria. So maybe they're going to keep trying to wreck Afghanistan through these proxy groups like ISIS. But I don't think they're ever going back in there. Why, why did a country? Syria is a different story. People, people might ask, why didn't the U.S. invade Syria? Why didn't the 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 UK and a coalition go into Syria. Syria was well armed, and of course it was protected, of course by by Russia. Why why does a, a militarily why why does a a country as advanced militarily as the United States is, Kevin? Why does it fail against a group of people who, while their hearts might be as big as their country, you know, metaphorically, they're 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 not. They don't have access to the same sophisticated weaponry and 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 uh, and tactics, you might argue. Why? Does, how could the United States fail to achieve its target in Afghanistan? I'll never understand that. Well, I actually wrote in American Free Press recently that it's all about morale. People, students of military history, they know that morale is everything. Uh, Sun Tzu pointed out that the best victory is the victory that you can win without actually fighting because you've destroyed your enemy's desire to fight. And even though the U.S. has this huge military with a massive uh, technological advantage, the U.S. knew that it was wrong from the get-go at some level. Sure, they whipped the people up into this hysterical frenzy with their 9-11 big lie false flag operation, pretending yeah. that Afghanistan had something to do with the neoconservative demolition of the Twin Towers and the murder of 3,000 Americans, but it didn't. And the Taliban has been saying that very clearly ever since, that they've never seen yeah. any evidence, not one shred of evidence that Bin even Laden recently, or Al-Qaeda yes. had anything to do with that. Even recently, isn't that right? Since the yeah. takeover, Just one or two ago. Taliban spokesmen, that's right, has come out and said, and of course there is no evidence that, that Bin Laden had anything to do with it. We'll talk 9-11 in a moment, by right. the way. Right, right, but uh, this is a morale issue, Richie. That, that is, a morale that, that, issue. They know what they're fighting for. They're fighting to defend their country. We, at some level, know that we're fighting for a big lie, and that doesn't make us really very eager to lay down our lives for that fight. I suppose you could make the, the, the point that for centuries, various groups of people tried to conquer Ireland with varying degrees of success, but ultimately they didn't succeed. because exactly. Because you have a people unwilling to be conquered. And it didn't matter in many cases that we were outnumbered. And certainly when it came to, you know, military equipment and technology, we were certainly at a disadvantage. Now, the, the, the press, which lies through its teeth most of the time, is reporting that the U.S. has lost billions of pounds worth of military equipment to the Taliban. And this is what I don't understand. And you and I, one thing we share, I think, is the ability to look beyond that headline and to wonder, you know, to ask some serious questions about that, to wonder what's really going on. I struggle to believe, Kevin, that the United States could just lose all of that military equipment, all of those guns in Afghanistan. I'll, I'll very briefly explain, and then I'll shut up and get out of your way, because I want to get your thoughts on this. 
I believe that the government, the, the US government, would have been concerned from the get-go about leaving behind lots and lots and lots of expensive hardware. So knowing that they planned on withdrawing from Afghanistan, it seems perfectly reasonable to me that they would have planned for not leaving that weaponry there and that they might have started slowly but surely taking that weaponry out ahead of the ultimate withdrawal. I don't understand why they wouldn't have done that. And I can only speculate, and of course this is just pure theory or, or, or a guess, speculation, that they wanted to leave that stuff there for the Taliban. Well, that, that's Russia's interesting. But I, I, it's possible. I doubt it, though. I, I, I think more likely, in this case, the official story that this whole thing is a gigantic catastrophe that un, unfolded much faster than they ever expected is probably true. And so they probably were planning to keep propping up the Afghan uh, fake puppet government for another at least like three months, maybe six months, maybe a couple of years if they got lucky. And during that time, that military equipment, of course, is going to be some of it's taken out and some of it is distributed to the, the local Afghan puppet government. Now, they they you know people have a tendency to lie to themselves and convince themselves of what they want to hear. You know, they want reality to, to be what, what they want it to be, not what it really is. And so they've been, just like in Vietnam, they've been consistently uh, claiming that things were much better for the Americans and their puppet government than they really were. And they may have convinced themselves to some extent with their own lies and propaganda. And this official story, which I actually tend to believe, is that they really thought that the puppet government would still be there in, say, the you know, beginning of 2022. And for that reason, they didn't probably feel tremendous urgency at getting all the weapons out. Also, it's it's not the end of the world for them. It's, it's a big black eye that they left those weapons there. But it's not like the Taliban are going to be invading anything important with those weapons anyway. So uh, I, I think if you keep those two things in mind, first, that the defeat was vastly faster and more catastrophic than they ever could have imagined. And then secondly, that those weapons are not a top-level national security priority. I think that would explain it. Yeah, interesting theory, Kevin. You might very well be right. Kevin Barrett is our guest. Writes for many publications. Go to truthjihad.com, kevinbarrett.substack.com. Look for Kevin on YouTube as well. Presents an excellent program, an academic PhD. And let's leave that there then, because Look, we're just going to have to watch, I suppose, wait and watch and see what happens. We know, at least we're told, 2,000 plus lunatic ISIS headchoppers armed to defeat by the United States government. And as I said, her allies, that's going to be, well, that could be absolute mayhem in the coming weeks and months. I'll be getting into it later on with another guest in the second there. But we are approaching the second anniversary, excuse me, the 20th anniversary of September the 11th. And of course, you and I met because of your courage in speaking out about September the 11th and asking challenging questions about the official story. And here we are all these years later, Kevin, 20 years. And would you believe it? I was reading today in the UK press. I can't remember where I was reading it, but it was, it was a story to do with Afghanistan today. And you know, they're still peddling the lie that Saddam Hussein had some sort of, you know, channel, back channel to the Taliban and that he was somehow supportive of what Osama bin Laden was doing. That lie which has been exposed, debunked, laughed out of town uh, by you and, and by many. They're still pulling that lie, Kevin, nearly 20, well, we are 20 years from September the 11th. And I think I ask you this pretty much most anniversaries. Did you hope by now that 
the wool would have been pulled from the eyes of the majority of the people of the world and they would understand by now what really happened on September the 11th. And does that leave you with a, you know, sense of frustration or, or, or disappointment that people still believe that the US was attacked by radical Islamists on September the 11th, 2001, and that the justified response to that was to basically destroy Iraq and Afghanistan? Is that frustrating or disappointing for you? Uh, sure, it's frustrating, although I wouldn't agree that the majority of the people of the world think that. But yeah, probably the majority of the people in the West at least accept it. You know, the polls show that uh, maybe a third of people in the West uh, doubt it, um, and maybe half of that doubt it very seriously or have some uh, knowledge and support for the truth movement. Uh, and then maybe another 20, 25, 30% sort of really believe the official story. But there's a lot of sort of confusion and doubt out there in the middle. So even in the West, it's not like everybody really believes this by any means. But if you go outside the Western countries, then you find that as there was a big headline, uh, a, a huge global poll, I forget which outfit did the poll not so many years ago, that the headline said uh, the majority of the people of the world don't believe Al-Qaeda did 9-11. And so it's still it's one of those topics that's going to be uh, it's going to be murky and people are going to be arguing about it for quite a while. I, I would love it if somehow we could force the Western mainstream media, which has such uh, outrageously exorbitant global influence to admit the truth. But that's probably not going to happen because the people who own the media feel a very strong affinity with the people that did 9-11. I mean, even the, if they're not directly complicit, even if they don't even agree with the politics, like the, a lot of the media is run by people who were basically uh, liberal, secular, progressivist types, uh, disproportionately ethnically Jewish, of course. Um, but even those people uh, are not in a huge hurry to blow the whistle on the fact that neoconservatives, uh, many of them with strong loyalties to the state of Israel, which wanted to hijack the U.S. military to destroy their enemies, the seven countries in five years that General Clark talked about, uh, did it. They, nice liberal uh, people uh, are terrified of this, especially if they have the slightest bit of affinity for the state of Israel, which unfortunately yeah. about half the key people in our media do. So the media is going to just keep covering this up. Yeah, and look, there's, there's no point in me get, getting into this with you again because we disagree. I mean, I, I, I've always been fascinated by the presence of the Israelis in downtown Manhattan on the day and the photographing of the, the, the towers and then those guys being arrested and then let go. I think it's more likely that through back channels, the Israelis knew that it was going to happen. And listen, nobody in the independent media, and I'll stand up to you on that, Mr. Barrett, nobody has gone after Israel and the the influence of the state of Israel in Western democracies as much as I have on this daily radio program. I've no time for Israel. I'm certainly not scared of, of them or their agents in this country or anywhere else, but I've never believed that Israel did 9-11. I, I, I just don't. I believe it was a self-inflicted wound. I think the Israelis probably knew it was going to happen. But look, you make a compelling case for, 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 for your point of view. And I, and I respect it, but I, I don't, I don't see it. We, we've gotten into this many times in the past. I wanted to ask you on, on, um, you mentioned the, the the media. Didn't Spike Lee? Now maybe I've been on holiday, so maybe I read this wrong, or, or or I misheard it. But the filmmaker Spike Lee hasn't he made some film about September the 11th, and hasn't he left the space in the film for some of the architects and engineers, the guys who believe that 
the buildings were brought down by, 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 by explosive. And I think that has been reported in the mainstream media. That's interesting. Maybe it's not Spike Lee now, but some prominent filmmaker has made a film to do with what happened 20 years ago. It might be a film focusing on compensation for people who lost loved ones on the day, but definitely there, space was made in the film for, for the architect guys. I think that's very interesting, Kevin. Well, actually what happened was that Spike Lee uh, just did a 9-11 documentary and the original version included a full 45 minutes of very positive coverage of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth and all of the evidence that the towers were blown up in controlled demolitions. And when the media, and specifically in this case, beginning with the New York Times, got, uh, got whiff of this and got a hold of the, you know, the early version of the film, they went berserk and uh, a huge outpouring of vitriol and, and hatred, really, uh, subdued a little bit, but barely hidden, was issued from mainstream media sources towards Spike Lee, essentially threatening to lynch him. Uh, and so Spike Lee, terrified, uh, said, wait, wait, I'm going back into the editing room. And he edited all of that out of his film. Now, if you actually look at the names of the people who wrote these stories attacking Spike Lee in uh, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Jewish Daily Forward, uh, Algeminer, and all these other Jewish uh, newspapers in the United States, the, the mainstream writers, they're all Jewish names, <laughs> the, the lynch mob that lynched Spike Lee for putting architects and engineers in, in, for 9-11 Truth in his film are almost all from the same group that has that loyalty in, in various degrees to that entity in the Middle East, uh, the genocidal entity occupying Palestine that was the only entity on earth to benefit from 9-11. And if, well, again, read well, Christopher Bolin on the people who owned the Twin Towers, who privatized the Twin Towers, and who obviously set up the demolitions, names like Larry Silverstein, and you, a close friend well, of Netanyahu, and you know who blew up those towers. And it wasn't the U.S. government. It's very unfair to say that Israel exclusively or almost exclusively benefited from what happened on September the 11th. The military-industrial complex, companies like Raytheon, Companies like BAE Systems, Kevin, they made billions. Companies like Halliburton made billions. So it's not just Israel. And look, I bet you, if you look at the attacks on Spike Lee, which I wasn't aware of, I bet you it's not all Jewish writers. I bet you it's pretty much everybody, right? I mean, if he's, if he's, if he's been pilloried, if he's been hammered for including the architects and engineers guys, I bet you it's pretty much across the spectrum that he's been, he's been criticized. I doubt that it's exclusively Jewish journalists. Uh, it's probably not exclusively, but I actually covered this for for False Flag Weekly News uh, the other week, and I looked at uh, the, all of the top ones that pop up when you do Google searches, and it's really kind of shocking <laughs> the, uh, the ethnicity of the names that are leading the that led the lynch mob that terrorized Spike Lee into pulling his film. And Spike Lee, he works in Hollywood, and just Google the phrase "Who runs Hollywood?" Come on, uh, written by a Jewish Hollywood insider who points out that. Well, uh, read it. Who runs Hollywood? I mean, like, Come on. I remember, I remember the article. It's a very interesting article. Yeah. I, I'm, Manny Friedman wrote the article, if I remember. No, it was and Joel. Uh, I forget his last name. Joel somebody. Was it Joel somebody? And I, I know that the Times of Israel has deleted all. Yeah. all. No, yeah, that's a different one. Manny Friedman wrote a different one to the same effect Manny, for the Times of Israel. Yeah. yeah, basically saying, look, we shouldn't, you know, we as, as, as a group of people, as a culture group, we shouldn't apologize for 
owning the media or doing really well in the media. We do. And he goes on to explain why he believes that so because of persecution against the Jews and the need to, you know, to uh, have some control over the narrative about Jewish people and all of that. Look, we, 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 I love well, but they're attacking it. Richard Gage for being supposedly anti-Semitic. Every major article uh, uh, lynching Spike Lee for including architects and engineers in his film uh, called Richard Gage anti-Semitic. Why? Because he appears at events with people like me and Christopher Bolin. Uh, he doesn't, he's never said anything about, uh, who, who he's, you know, he's never spoken out about who did it, uh, directly, but that's, they're using that as guilt by association to go after him. And who are they and who would use that strategy? Who are you talking to, my friend? This program has been mentioned hundreds of times in the British mainstream press. I must be anti-Semitic, Kevin, because I speak to people like you and uh, who I like. I like you. That's why I have you on because I see things a bit differently than you and my audience need to hear a different side of it. But um, that's how they they will destroy the independent media. They will destroy people by association. It doesn't matter that I don't necessarily see things as you see them. I do. A lot of things I, I, I see are very similar to you. It doesn't matter by the fact you on and because you believe that Israel was implicitly involved in September the 11th I therefore must be a hateful anti-Semite now I don't but I don't believe you're a hateful anti-Semite as it happens I don't believe that if I did I would call you a hateful anti-Semite but this is the tactic isn't it it's to scare people coming it's to scare people into not coming on programs like this one don't come on why well because we'll call you racist why? Well, because you were on a program that Kevin Barrett was on or somebody from Red Ice Radio was on or, or somebody else. This is a, a tactic, Kevin, and I, I'm sad to report it's one that's working. Would you believe? Unfortunately, yeah. And and what it ultimately does is it, it prevents people from hearing the truth. Uh, Richard Gage will tell you a lot of true things about why we know that the World Trade Center was explosively demolished. It didn't just fall down from jet plane fueled fires, but he can't tell you that if they if they call him an anti-Semite and and scare Spike Lee into erasing him. They're they're just erasing the truth using this strategy. And I'm I'm really tired of it. I'm tired of it. I didn't know. You see, again, because I literally came back today after just over three weeks away and I heard on the grapevine Spike Lee, bit of trouble, but I didn't have time to read it today. It's distressing to me that somebody like, no, I, look, I'm not going to give Spike Lee any credit. I've enjoyed some of his movies, but I think he's a bit of an arsehole sometimes as well. The fortitude, Kevin, to say, no, these guys have said something interesting. My audience needs to see it. The fact that he ran to the edit suite and cut the film, and I've no no reason to doubt you because you wouldn't say that if it wasn't true. That's distressing, Kevin. That's well, it's disgraceful, disgraceful, really. It's the end of journalism, isn't it? And he's not the first to do this. Over and over, we see these same uh, mostly Zionist-linked forces terrorizing, intimidating, and, and indeed uh, lynching and and erasing uh, so many great people out there. And and ninety plus percent of the time. It works. The people back down, apologize, uh, beg for forgiveness. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry I was such an anti-Semite to include uh, Richard Cage in my 9-11 film. 
uh, I, I wish people would learn to stop apologizing. Um, it's uh, the apologizing doesn't get you anywhere. It just encourages them. It's like a bully when a bully attacks you and brutalizes you. If you, you know, say, oh, oh, Mr. Bully, I'm so sorry for existing and angering you, then you'll just yeah. do it again. You need to punch the guy in the nose. Well, you need to go on the attack. When Sky News and the BBC and Channel 4 News and The Guardian and every other newspaper in this country claimed that I was a, a platform for hate and all that bollocks, I just went after them, called them out and say, well, I'm not. And if you have any courage, you'll bring me on your programs. And that's how you call them out. You say you've not offered me right of reply because you're because you're a coward and a liar. That's all you are. You know, if you had anything on me, of course, that's the thing. And look, I'm not important. I'm just a presenter. I'm not important. You're a researcher. If they really had anything on somebody like me, and I present the most listened to independent radio show in the world, Kevin, that's not an idle boast in the world. If they had anything on me, they'd have me on, wouldn't they? They couldn't wait to get you in the studio if they had something on you. But they don't. So what they do is they make false claims against you, knowing full well that you don't have the money to take them to court. This is the problem. If I had the money, you need about a half a million pounds in England to take somebody to court for libel. You need that because you've got to put up the guarantee just in case you lose, right? It's so rigged, it's unbelievable. So they say things about people and they know those people don't have any real recourse. There's nowhere to go, basically. And what I do is I just say, look... I've got a massive audience and I'll keep calling you out for what you are. And I certainly won't back down. I won't stop inviting people on just because you say they're racist or hateful. I won't do that. And uh, and you hope that eventually enough people will hear it and some change will come out of it. But I don't hold my breath either, you know. We're, we're just about to run out of time, Kevin. Uh, mention where people can hear you. We know where we can read you. Owns.com and America Free Press. Where can people see and hear you online? Well, you can find all my radio shows by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the radio schedule link. And truthjihad.com also has a Substack subscribe button and links to the other work I do at Press TV and places like that. We'll always uh, have room for a chat, you and me. Been speaking to you for many years, articulate, brilliantly briefed. Uh, Kevin, I love having you on. And I think obviously in in, in the very near future, we'll, we'll be picking up Afghanistan again and what's going to happen there in the coming uh, weeks and months. Thanks for your time today, my friend. Love having you on. Cheers, Kevin. Thanks, Richie. It's great talking to you. That's uh, Kevin Barrett, truthjihad.com. Check out Kevin there, kevinbarrett.substack.com. Old friend of mine, been speaking on my radio shows now for many, many years.